Recovery Radio, KMP3, Thousand Oaks. Ah, yes. You are listening to the Recovery Radio Podcast. On KMP3. I am a member of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I will be your host. And I'm very excited that you have tuned in today. If you knew what you were in store for, you would be so fired up. I don't know. It might be considered relapse. I don't know. (laughs) I have a very special guest here today. And I'm excited for him to be here with us and share his experience with you. He is one of my best friends in the world. He is my recovery brother. And the reason why he is going to be the first guest on this podcast is because the information that completely changed my life and completely changed my sobriety and completely set me free in so many ways um, was the same information that did the same for him. Mm-hmm. And so I want you to hear his story. Uh, it's, it's incredible, it's powerful, and hopefully it's very valuable. And so without further ado, mm-hmm. say hello to my very good friend, Dave. Hello, everyone. How are you today, Dave? I'm doing well, thanks. Are excited? You, are you excited to be here? Yeah. So what do we what do we want to talk about? Um, I don't know. Baseball. Let's talk about baseball. <laughs> Actually, I'm not a fan of baseball. I couldn't talk about baseball even if I wanted to. <laughs> all right. So we'll let's talk about recovery instead. Oh, all right. <laughs> uh, so you have been in Alcoholics Anonymous for a very long time. In and out for a very long time. And in for a pretty long time. I've been in for nine years. All right. in. Okay. So if you could, please tell us about when you first came to AA and and what happened after that. Mm. Well, that would have been uh, 29 years ago. So like I said, I was, uh, I've been in for nine and, and I was in and out for 20 years prior to that. But... Um, Oh, so my first introduction, I guess, uh, my first experience with Alcoholics Anonymous was in uh, 1989, about the time that you actually got sober, um, 2,000 miles apart. I was in Omaha, Nebraska, and uh, I'd, I'd gotten a DUI, and I was sentenced to 10A meetings, um, so I had to, go to, had to go to 10A meetings. I do remember, like, there was only one place that I knew of that had AA meetings, and I remember going there, just being really defiant, like, fuck this shit, you know, and... I'd be in the meeting, and it was, I'm assuming it was a closed meeting because it was one where everybody goes around the room, says, oh, I'm Joe, I'm an alcoholic, I'm Linda, I'm an alcoholic, blah, blah, blah. And I just remember, like, sweating for it to come around to me and being like, fuck that, I ain't seen it. Fuck that. And it was like, so I'm Bob, and I'm an alcoholic. And it would get to me, and I'd be like, I'm Dave. <laughs> and it'd just be this uncomfortable silence. <laughs> Not playing along. No, yeah. <laughs> 
so that was probably that would be my first AA meeting um, it's interesting because uh, at that same time 1989 was the year that the, the movie my name is D Bill W came out and um, it was the Hallmark Hall of Fame movie of the week in 1989 sure. and uh, I just got a DUI my mother recorded it and she wanted me to watch it and I remember I popped the tape in the VCR and um, the Donahue show is also recorded because uh, Phil Donahue um, had uh, James Woods and James Garner. So James Woods and James Garner played played Bill and Bob in the movie My Name is Bill W. And uh, Phil Donahue had them on to promote the movie and to talk about their roles and talk about the movie and whatnot. And uh, so I'm watching that and a couple of things that I really remember is uh, um, I was really impressed with James Woods. He was he's he's like a a genius kind of guy. He's like super smart and just captivating. I remember listening to him. He has all these answers. All these people in the audience are asking questions about AA, and he comes up with like really eloquent. I didn't know anything about AA, but it seemed like he knew a lot, and um, he had these great answers. And um, at one point this guy called in to the show and I guess the producers thought maybe James Woods could help him so they put him on speakerphone uh, so James Woods could talk to him and, and the guy's just describing his life he's like hey, I'm an alcoholic and I'm drinking right now as a matter of fact and it's the middle of the day and uh, I don't have a job and my marriage is falling apart and I'm miserable and, and I, I just don't know what to do and, and James Woods said uh if there was a big red button in front of you and if you were to push that button, you would never drink again. Would you push it? And the guy was it was on a speakerphone, so it was like just this hesitation and this like uh and mm -hmm. and, uh, and then James Wood yeah. said, Actually, you know what, let me rephrase that. If there was a big red button in front of you and if you were to push that button, you wouldn't want to drink anymore. Would you push it? And the guy was like, Yeah, there was no hesitation. Like, yeah, that button? I'd push that button for sure. Yeah. And uh, James Wood said, that button is AA. And uh, that kind of had always stuck with me. Um, I actually didn't get sober for another 20 years, but um, I don't know. That's my first introduction. Uh, I went to, I didn't even actually go to my t first 10 me meetings. I was, I was sentenced to 10 meetings, and then um, my uh, probation officer had gotten transferred or something, and, and I only had like maybe four or five weeks left, and they were just like, you know what? By the time we get you reassigned to somebody, it'll be over. Just, you're done. And I remember I had only gone to like seven or eight meetings. So let me ask you something. While you're going to these meetings, what are you thinking? You, you got a DUI. Yeah. Your mom wants you to go to AA. Yeah. What are you thinking? I, I, I don't think in my mind there was any question that I was an alcoholic at that point. Like I said, I was 20 years old, but um, I had, you know... I'd had this long toward relationship with with alcohol, and I'd gotten in a lot of trouble. And, and I, for sure, I was very clear that like um, I'm an alcoholic. I don't know. Uh, in my mind, I'm an alcoholic. I get it, um, but I'm not gonna like quit drinking. <laughs> you know, I mean, this is just gonna be the way it is, right? Um, and I'm okay with that, I guess. Meaning, you're just gonna be an alcoholic. You're gonna continue drinking alcoholically, yeah, and let the chips fall where they may. Yeah. Yeah, the weird thing is that, um, like I said, I was sentenced to 10 meetings, and initially I was very defiant, like, fuck that, I'm not saying I'm an alcoholic, and this is bullshit, and I'm just, you know, 
sitting there with my arms crossed and in defiance through the first you know few meetings i don't know but at some point like toward the the later meetings they'd be going around the room i'm jim an alcoholic i'm letting an alcoholic and, and and i'm like i think i might say it i think i might say it this time and i never did it would get to me and then i would chicken out um but i was really starting to identify i, I do remember that like kind of the emotion that i had when when they told me that my probation was over and and just you know however many meetings i i had gone to that was good enough and and I remember thinking, like, fuck yeah, you know, fuck the man. You know, they sentenced me to 10 and I only went to 7, you know. Right. Um, but also um, I felt like, you know, I was really kind of starting to identify and kind of uh, feeling a part of, I guess. I never really, you know, stepped over that line and said, okay, yeah, I'm part of you guys. But I was starting to feel like I was. But there was no thought of... Okay, I've gone to seven. I want to keep going. I'm starting to feel a part of this, but I'm done. There was no, there was no part. Of, there was no part of you that said, you know, I'm going to keep coming. I think I was starting to get there. Just the bare minimum beginning, like that, was starting to happen. I don't know if I had gone to ten, maybe it would have been different. Right. Maybe it would have taken twenty. I don't know, but I was just starting to find some level of comfort. But then as soon as you didn't have to go anymore, that was it. Yeah, that was it. <laughs> so then what happened next? So, um, I don't know. I mean, I continued drinking. So I was 20 years old at that time. Um, I'd gotten fired from my job a couple years later, and then I moved um, to Dubuque, Iowa, from the Midwest. So I think I already mentioned that. I was from Nebraska. But uh, ended up moving to Dubuque, Iowa, and working for my uh, sister's husband. And... Um, Still getting in some trouble. When I was 23, I, I got arrested for public intox at my employee Christmas party. I got drunk, and I got violent with people, and um, the people that owned the venue, well, we rented this venue for our Christmas party, but the owners of the venue were like, fuck this kid. Like, we're calling the cops. Right. <laughs> and they did. <laughs> it is it is one of those you know i share that a lot i got a couple of funny stories that i share when i'm when i'm you know speaking somewhere or whatever but um you know there's a lot of like events that were you know pitifully pitifully and incomprehensibly demoralizing when they happened and they were events that like the next day i was like i'm done i'm never drinking again you know and uh i'm just horrified at the thought of what i had done and a lot of those events i can look back now and it's funny it's funny Right. I got arrested for public intox at my Christmas party. Right. You know, but, um, uh, you know, and I always say that, like, for every one of those events that I can look back at now and laugh at, there's probably four or five for every one of those that will just never be funny. I mean, people got hurt and, you know. Right. Will you tell, you know what I'm going to ask you, right? No. Will you tell the the taser story? The taser story? (laughs) So... Uh, the first time I got arrested was the DUI, but I did not go to jail. That was 1989. And, um, you know, they gave me the breathalyzer, they cuffed me or whatever, and then they just let me walk home. Um, then, then the first time I went to jail was the public intox for, um, at my employee Christmas party. And the last time I went to jail was, um, about 10, 11 years ago at this point. I'm sober for nine, so... Um, about 10, 11 years ago, I was uh, arrested for public intox again. 
uh, in my front yard. Uh, and uh, actually, so the whole story started in my in my backyard. I'm in my backyard, and I'm uh, kind of wish people could see because if, if you could see me, you could see like I'm not a big guy. He's not uh, a big I, man. I'm not a I'm not an intimidating presence, you know. But um, and if you could picture me at 114 pounds, um, five nine ish, 114 pounds, with a wife beater that's like saggy. <laughs> It's like not even tight, you know. It's just it's like dripping off me, yeah. But um, I got a few tattoos, a couple of tattoos of like spiritual stuff. Like I got like angels, you know, on my chest and on my back, and yeah. But anyway, in my mind, I'm wearing this, <laughs> I'm busting out of this wife beater, and I'm all tatted up. I'm in my backyard, and my wife, God bless her, you know my wife. Uh, for the audience that doesn't know my wife, she's just this angel. She's so sweet and so not, like, street savvy or anything. No, you know? no. <laughs> but she's just a sweetheart. But um, she locked me out of the house. I was drunk and I was, you know, obnoxious. And she doesn't want me to come in the house and she doesn't want me to drive. So she calls the cops thinking that it's like... You know, the Gomer Pyle days or whatever, you know, the Andy Griffiths days, I guess, where, you know, they throw you in the dunk ta- drunk tank and they, they let you out the next day. And so she calls the cops. So I'm in my backyard. This cop is, I don't know. I don't know what he's saying, but it's annoying for me. And I'm like, you know, flexing at him and shit and like, you know, kind of like lurching toward him, you know, and he's backing up. And I'm in my mind, I'm like, That's you know, right. he's fucking scared of me, you know, as he should be. I'm <laughs> this intimidating presence all tatted up with this white beard that's <laughs> Yeah, but um, I don't know. He he wasn't <laughs> intimidated by me. He was he knew that like every time I lurched, if he backed up, I would lurch forward again. Eventually, we would end up in the front yard where I'm in the public, and and then he can arrest me for public intox. So, right. yeah, I I don't know. I mean, I finally I end up in the front yard. My foot my my foot hits the the, the front lawn, and and he whips out the handcuffs, and I take a swing at him, and he tasers me, and I shit my pants, and then I get hauled off to jail. And, you know, the next day I'm like, fuck it. I, I'm done. Like, <laughs> you know, like, it was horrifying in that moment. Like the neighbors, yeah. like, you know, like I shit my pants. I got tasered and shit my pants in front of the neighbors. And uh, I think that would do it. Yeah. You know, I got for years in and out of Alcoholics Anonymous. Like I always kind of thought I always fancied myself a fairly intelligent guy. Like I can. I'm logical, you know, and I would hear logical things. I still hear logical things today that seem logical if you're not an alcoholic. Logical solutions that are like, you know, you got to reach a bottom and play the tape all the way through, like that sort of thing. Right. So in my mind, for years, like, okay, you got to reach this bottom that's so pitifully and incomprehensibly demoralizing that that's the tape that next time I want to drink, I play that tape through because... You know, fuck, when I get out of jail, I'm like, I, I in my mind, I'm like convinced. Like, right. I'm done. You're done. I'm yeah. done with this. I'm not going to drink again. And I mean it from the, my core. Right. And I believe, like, that's the tape. Like, next time I even think about drinking, yeah, think about shitting your pants in front of your neighbors again, you know? Right. Like, I don't want that to ever happen again. Right. You know? Um, but the thing is, it seems logical for somebody who's not an alcoholic, but if you're an alcoholic... You've probably tried that. Yes. You know? <laughs> yes. And it doesn't work. It doesn't. It doesn't permanently work. No. 
it'll work. It's I, I found over the years that it worked less often and for less amount of time. Like that time, I think it was like four days later, and I want a drink. So before this had happened, so this is in 2008, you said, you've been going to, how often had you been going to Alcoholics Anonymous? Uh, so, you know, I went to seven or eight meetings, whatever, when I got sentenced to that, and I was 20 years old. Then I went again after the public intox at my employee Christmas party. And I was in for like seven years. But... Um, and the most I'd ever gotten as far as time was 15 months. And when I first started going to, to AA at that point, I had put together 15 months. And this was back in, I don't even, I, I, I remember that uh, Kurt Cobain had died, and, and that was it for me. I went to the bar. I had 15 months sober, Kurt Cobain killed himself, and I went to the bar. And, and I got drunk. And, uh, but I continued to go to AA meetings. And over the next several years, um, you know, I would get six months here, nine months there, 30 days, 60 days, whatever. And the amount of time sober that I was able to accumulate was uh, getting, you know, less and and further between. Um, I wasn't able to stay sober. And uh, and I'd really gotten into some hard drugs. and uh, Like what? uh, Meth and... uh, um, pills, Norcos, um, heroin, uh, mainly meth. <laughs> meth right. was my big one. Right. That's why I say, like, you know, w- with the wife beater and everything, I was 114 pounds because I did a lot of meth. Gotcha. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I was not able to stay sober, but I did continue going to meetings. My marriage was falling apart, and I didn't want it to. Um I didn't know what else to do. I actually, I do remember that there were times that I was going to AA meetings just because um, I didn't want to go home. And I didn't want to go to the bar. I don't know. I I, I was lost. And I don't know. But I guess eventually um, I'd become so sick of the person that I had become like I was a dirtbag and I was never raised to be a dirtbag I had, I had good parents that, that loved me and provided for me and uh, and I had this amazing wife and um, uh, I, I just I'd become this dirtbag that uh, I was disgusted with I read the book a lot I knew the book pretty well I could quote it you know um, and I'd done steps and and in hindsight, it all makes sense to me now. With the understanding that I have of the big book and the steps, the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, the, the understanding that I have now, I can totally see what went wrong back then. But um, I would do steps, and I would have a spiritual experience, and I would feel great um, for, I don't know, you know, a couple months maybe. And then little by little... Uh, I would just start to become dissatisfied with my life, like my job. And I'd be looking at other people and be like, why does that guy have it made? You know, why does he get to have that car and that job and that girl? And, you know, why do I have to struggle so much? And I be I was a victim. I was, you know, those are my, my biggest um, issues in life were anger and being a victim. But anyway, yeah, I would, I would just, I would ultimately end up be, becoming a, a victim, and and um, I know now that I was, I was just shut off from God. 
It was, it's that simple. I just shared this almost the exact same thing uh, when I was talking about, you know, the first two and a half years of my sobriety. Right. Um, at the time, I didn't understand why I was miserable and wanting to drink and a victim, and I really didn't understand why, but really it was as clear as that. I was just blocked off from God. Anyways. Yeah. No, I get it. It's, I overcomplicated things so much that I overthought things, but um, I share, I'm really passionate about Alcoholics Anonymous uh, now, and it's changed my life dramatically. Um, and it's very simple. <laughs> it's so, it's too simple. Um, but I don't know. Sometimes I'm called, I'm referred to as Taser Dave, and sometimes I'm Analogy Dave. And I, I have analogies that, um, images in my mind of the way things would look like if they were really, you know, literally, like something the, the book describes, what would that literally look like, you know? Right. Um, like, I see Alcoholics Anonymous as uh, a store with 12 aisles. And I'm in L1, like, I'm screwed. I've got this problem, this drinking problem, that I cannot solve. I get that. I am unable to solve this problem. Nobody else can solve it for me. All right, come on in dial two, you know. Are you willing to believe that there's a power greater than yourself that can solve that problem? All right, yeah, I'm willing to believe. And it's like somebody says, that power is in aisle 10, 11, and 12. You just need to get to 10, 11, 12. I'm in aisle two, and I'm like... Looking all the way down at aisle 10, 11, 12, and I actually can't see it because there's, like, garbage blocking it, you know? It's like God's back there. He's like, you know, I can't even see him, you know? It's, like, blocked and, you know? I'll take care of everything for you. (laughs) I'll take care of all of your problems. Not only that one. I'll cover everything for you. Just come to aisle 10, 11, 12 and hang out with me. I'm like, I can't get there, you know? And God's like, you know... Take an inventory of all the garbage that's blocking us so you can make a path to get to aisle 10, 11, and 12, you know? This is beautiful. Yeah, thank you. Um, But I, you know, that's the way I need to see it. I need to, like, literally see what that would look like. I take this literally. The, The authors of the big book were like, they describe some really incredible things. And I think about it like, Either they were telling the truth or they were bullshitting in order to sell books that they weren't fucking making a profit on, you know? Right. So, right. <laughs> but anyway, I, I, you know, I mean, I try to like really like imagine what things are like when they say like above everything, we alcoholics must be rid of the selfishness like that. They mean above everything. Right. Like they're not bullshitting. They're right. telling the truth. This is what they do. This is what they applied to their life and these incredible things had happened. And, um... So if I look at that literally, it's like if God was just like in aisle 10, 11, and 12, and he's like, Dave, come over here. Hang out with me. I will take care of you. So like I said, when I, when I look with hindsight back in those days where I would do steps and I would feel amazing for a while, and then little by little I start to become a victim again, like that's where I, blocked myself, I got blocked from God. I mean, that's it. Right. You know, Um and and the book is like it describes like how to how to not get blocked from God. I'm actually going to get blocked because I'm a human being. Um, I'm going to get blocked from God again. Right. Like the point is now to recognize it and then use the tools that Alcoholics Anonymous has given me to unblock myself to dig that path again. 
Right. Yeah. So you couldn't see it back then while you were blocked. You couldn't see that you were blocked. I thought my I thought this was just alcoholism. I thought because because I'm an alcoholic. Wait, you thought what was alcoholism? My um, inability to socialize, uh, my controlling nature, my anger, my being a victim, my um, mo- mostly victim. Like everybody else had the blueprint to life. Everybody that was not an alcoholic has the blueprint to life, and I, because I'm an alcoholic, don't. I'm more defective than other people. They don't have to struggle with the things that I struggle with. So believing that causes you to do or not do what? Believing that, um, yeah, causes me to, I guess, try to accept that that's the way it is. And um, it causes me to be blocked from God. It causes me to be resentful at people who are not that way. It causes me to blame alcoholism instead of taking responsibility for my own shit. Like, I'm powerless over alcoholism. Like, I get that. You hear that everywhere. Like, there's that's a no-brainer. Right. I'm powerless over alcoholism. And... My idea that my uh, that I'm more defective than other people and that uh, that you know that's alcoholism, then I'm powerless over that, which just creates a, more of a victim mentality for me. And I'm just stuck there, stuck blocked from God. <laughs> right. So what do you do today to be unblocked? Well, I use the tools that that uh, I'd gotten. Um, through working the steps. Step three was huge for me. Like a real understanding, like really going through the book. Like I said, those, that 20-year period, like, I don't know. I mean, I knew what the book said. I knew Step three to me meant um, saying the prayer uh, and then I guess doing an inventory. Constantly saying the prayer. <laughs> Constantly. Anytime I'm like uncomfortable, I say the prayer. We were talking about this earlier. We had breakfast earlier, and we were talking about, you know, praying and um, and then not like backing it up with anything. Like the book is very clear: faith without works is dead. You can pray all you fucking want, you know, right. but you, but like I don't know what what I've learned is that I, I need to pray for like what does God want me to do, and then I have to get off my ass and go do it. And and I look back, I remember being in Dubuque, Iowa, and. Uh, in early sobriety and obsessing on drinking. I was in my room and I wanted to drink so bad. And I'm praying like a madman. I'm like, God, take away this obsession. Like, why are you not taking away this obsession? I want to drink so bad. God, please take away this thing that I'm fucking focused on constantly right here. This thing, you need to take this thing away from me. Mm. Why are you not taking the, you know? And, and I see now that like the third step for me, the analogy of uh, the actor wanting to run the whole show, all of that, I love that analogy. And, and, and if I really take that seriously, um, that I'm just an actor in this show with seven billion other actors, and I don't have the starring role, but God is directing this movie. Everywhere I go, filming a scene. And what, God, what do you want me to do in this scene, you know? You're directing it. What do you want me to do in this scene? Go film another one, whatever. 
So if I really apply that, like I, I can see now back then and then when I was obsessing on drinking and, and asking God to, to take it away, it's like that was a scene that I was focused on and I didn't have a role. I mean, my role was over in that, you know. Mm-hmm. There, there was nothing for me to do in that scene. Had I gone and filmed another scene where I was engaged with somebody else, hey, what's going on with your life? You know, how are you doing today? What can I be, you know, what can I contribute to your life? And then I'm thinking about this scene that I'm filming with you. And the other one is playing out on its own, you know. And and time goes by. Uh, I kill time filming this scene with you. And then the other one's like, uh, it's gone. It's played out. Right. So I need to like, really stay in that mentality that if something is concerning me, I need to actually go do what God would want me to do. And God likes takes care of the other stuff. You know, there's promises in the third step that like we had a new employer, he provided what we needed if we kept close to him and performed his work well and, and all that. Like if there's a certain scene that's causing me discomfort, if there's something I need to do in that scene, then I go ahead and do it. And then I go film another one and kill time that way while this other scene plays out on its own. Right. And I'm not thinking about it. And generally, you know, God takes care of that other scene. There's really nothing I needed to do with it. Right. (laughs) So walk me through this. You wake up in the morning and today you wake up and what happens? What are you thinking? Uh, What are your rituals, if any? Uh, Where's God in this? You want to you want to uh, get into that? Uh, it's funny. I do have some, you know, I guess rituals. Uh, I've gone back and forth in this area in my life um, multiple times. It's changed for me. Things have changed for me. I, you know, but I do have you know a few set prayers that I do in the morning. The first thing I wake up, um, I say hello to God. I say good morning to God and. Um, I say the third step prayer and the seventh step prayer. Um, but it's, it's funny because that's like the least meaningful interaction that I have with God throughout the day. Good prayers. Yeah. Because it's just, it's, it's so routine. Like I can recite those prayers and be thinking about something completely different. Like what's going on with my day? You know, what I got to do today, whatever. Um, but it's just so routine and so, I guess, rehearsed that, like, you know, the words are coming out of my mouth, but I'm not really engaged in that. Um, so, like I said, I, get, I think that's, like, the least meaningful interaction that I, that I have with God throughout the day. My more meaningful action, uh, interactions with God are, you know, like, really, like, talking to God and, like, really, like, asking for direction and really thanking him or her you know, I've gone through different, I guess, concepts of what God is. Um, is it a he? Is it a she? It's hard. Well, if I say he, then I've got the image of a person, you know, right. that's got, and, I, and I don't want that. It's not that. I know it's not that. The best thing I can say now is, um, for me, it's love. That's what God is. It's just love. And if like, what would love want me to do in this scene? Everywhere I go, I'm filming a scene. Right. What's like the most loving thing that I can do in this scene? And it's it's hard to like, um, I, I guess have like an image of what that looks like. 
Yeah, but it's an experience. Yeah. Right. It is. That's. I guess that's my point. Is that when I'm, when I'm saying prayers, it's like I'm, I, I've got to be saying that to something that, and it's I got to have it in my mind. But when I'm just going through my day and thinking about love, like it, it's just it, it flows more freely and fluently and. Right. Yeah, I I feel the same way. I mean, I just dropped an extra O in the middle of the word God, because I know what good is. Yeah, and. Um. Yeah, my, I mean, everyone's entitled to their own experience, which is so awesome. But my my God doesn't have genitalia. Yeah, yeah, mine doesn't either. Right, <laughs> right. <laughs> I don't think God's that limited. I don't know. Yeah, but I don't know. I mean, it doesn't. It doesn't matter what I think. Yeah. Right. It just doesn't matter. Yeah. What do they say in the book? Uh, to us, the realm of God is. All inclusive, roomy, broad. Yeah, you know, never, never uh, restricting or something like yeah. that. Yeah, it's open to all men who earnestly seek. Yeah, most comforting thing anyone ever said to me was pretty early on. Someone said I was struggling, and they said, um, and it was they were the voice of God talking. You know, they were like if God could talk. He would say, you know, don't be afraid. Right. Um. If you know to look for me, you already found me. Right. Yeah. God does not make too hard terms for those who seek him. Right. It's not that complicated. So let's say you're going to work, you're you're showing up at work. Mm. And describe what it is like to show up at work when you feel you are in pretty good spiritual condition. You feel connected to God. You feel pretty dialed in. You're feeling good. Well, what is that? What, do you, what are your thoughts like on a day like that? Um, I, 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 when I'm in that mentality, mm-hmm. that, I guess that spiritual condition, I feel good. And, and, and I understand what it is that makes me feel that way. When I'm thinking about other people and what I can contribute, if, okay, I'm filming the work scene. Right. What would love, if love was directing this scene... Right. What would it want me to do? And I say, oh, hey, to my coworkers, hey, good morning, how you doing? You know, right. how was that thing last night? You know, you're going to go do that thing after work. How'd that go? You know, um, I'd, I'd, I'd get busy, get to work and um, do my job. Like, that's what they hired me to do. <laughs> right. I, I will catch, like, when I'm not in that kind of condition, I see it pretty quickly. That was my next question. Like, what's it like when you're not in that? I'm protesting. I'm protesting <laughs> whatever it is that I'm that I'm coming across. The book talks about that. Like, you know, after it describes what this you know spiritually sick or self-centered person looks like, it says whatever our protestations are not most of us concerned with ourselves, our resentments, and our self-pity. Whatever it is, I'm protesting. Am I not just concerned with it not going the way that I think it should, and I'm pissed off about it? Right. And it's somebody else's fault, and now I'm the victim. Right. It unfolds exactly the way they describe in the book. Concerned with ourselves, our resentments, or our self-pity. Things right. aren't going the way that I think they should go. You're not paying me what you should be or what I think I deserve. Right. And therefore, I can't buy whatever, you know? Right. Uh, important to note that in, in that part of the book, they're not describing just alcoholics. Oh, you're right. Absolutely. 
Right. They were describing most people, which I didn't know. Right. For 20 years of right. in and out. Right. Um, but yeah, most people are, most people are protesting. Right. This is why I'm unhappy. If the world looked this way, or if you behaved that way, if I had this in my life, we'd all be happy. Right. Yeah. You know? But I don't have it. You fucked it and up. And it's your fucking fault. Yep. <laughs> I had the image in my mind. It was great. I had it figured out for everybody. We were all going to be happy. And then Joe came along and fucked everything up for right. everybody. It would have been great. Yeah. Now none of us can be happy. And it's Joe's fucking fault. Now I'm a fucking victim. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I I guess my mind has become trained to, like, recognize that, that I'm protesting something. If I'm uncomfortable, the, the third step again, you know, this is the uh, selfishness, self-centeredness is the root of our troubles. The, whatever it is that's troubling me, it's causing me discomfort, the root of it is it's not going the way I think it should go. Right. Yeah. The root of our troubles, everyone's troubles. Yes. All the troubles. Yes, people's troubles. Yeah, that's a that's a key piece of information that it's changed my whole huge. sobriety. Because up and up until I was two and a half years sober, I thought, you know, like you were saying earlier, I thought that, you know, I had some kind of exclusive, you know, corner on uh, selfishness. Yeah, and that that was my alcoholism, and that made me not work to get rid of it. There's people that still like want to hang on to that. That that's alcoholism. Yeah. You know? What I what I what I hear a lot a lot is that what you're saying there. Mm. Is that I'm very selfish. I'm very selfish. Yeah. I'm extremely selfish. I'm, I'm extremely crazy. selfish. Yeah. However, the, the information and the understanding that really set me free mm. was that I not only not only will God remove whatever self will has blocked me off from him says it in black and white mm-hmm. but I have to do that yeah I have to become less selfish above, above everything above everything not <laughs> only do I have to yeah. and not only can he remove self will yeah but it's the most important thing yeah 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 and others don't that was, and others don't yeah that understanding it, you're saying it too it like changed the changed the game for me it was uh, it changed everything yeah I was no longer a victim Right. And that was huge for me. Like I said, you know, being a victim and being angry right, uh, were the biggest things that blocked me from God through most of my life. Um, but, yeah, like, oh, other people struggle with this stuff, too? Right. Well, you hear, you know, that, that you, I, I, I've heard a lot of people when I was new, I'd heard a lot of people say that normal people, and I still hear it, but normal people have, have a good, have a better. They somehow have this stuff solved. Yeah. But my experience is that is not true at all. Right. I mean, the more, the longer I've been sober, the more non-alcoholics I have had the pleasure of knowing, you know, on a level beyond the superficial where you get to really know them and how they think and what their life is like. And I've still never met a person who doesn't struggle with fear, resentment, self-pity, dishonor, all of it. Yeah. All of it. In a way, we have it, we have it better. Yeah. Yeah. 
That's true. Yeah. Like when it says like the root of our troubles, selfishness and self-centeredness, the root of our troubles, mm-hmm. when I'm uncomfortable, it's selfishness. Right. And above everything, I have to be rid of this selfishness. So above everything, I have to basically be more comfortable. <laughs> <laughs> right. right. The non-alcoholic doesn't. Right. The non-alcoholic can be as shut off from God as they want. It sucks. They describe two pages of what it looks like to be not living in God's will. And it's designed, like the first requirement for step three is to be convinced that self-will sucks, basically. Right. It cannot lead to success. Any life run on self-will cannot be successful. And, uh, and then they try to help us be convinced of that by describing what it looks like. And it looks like having an idea of how things need to be, how things should be, and they're not that way, and I'm pissed off because it's your fault and I'm a victim. That's what selfishness and self-centeredness looks like. That's what's causing me discomfort. And above everything, I need to be rid of that stuff. The non-alcoholic doesn't, which is sad. (laughs) It is. (laughs) But also, like, I feel, like, really grateful that I'm grateful to be an alcoholic. You know, I used to hate when people say that. But I really, I firmly believe my life is better now than it ever would have been. Even if I hadn't been an alcoholic, I would have still been a human being who still struggled with fear and resentment and ego and self-pity. All these things that cause me discomfort because most humans do struggle with that. Right. But they don't have to not. They don't have to not struggle with that. They don't have to. Right. They're not forced to be more comfortable. Yeah. Yeah. We're bullied into being comfortable. Yeah. Yeah. By alcohol. Yeah. We've got a gun to our head saying, you need to fucking be more comfortable. Sorry, you need to. Yeah. Sorry. You need to learn how to live a life where you will not usually be in conflict and collision. Yeah. Yeah. With something or someone. Sorry. Yeah. You've got this problem that we've got a solution that will fix it, that will solve it. Right. But it doesn't just solve that problem. You have to use this solution for everything. Right. Right. Sorry. I can't solve just that problem for you. Right. I have to give you a solution for all of it. It's not easy though. I wanted to talk no, about not. I wanted to talk about how what I'm very aware of is how you could hear a conversation like this and think to yourself that somehow uh being being perfect is involved in this yeah yeah i, I was thinking same thing not about. not getting into self uh many times each day yeah. is involved in this yeah um that's all bullshit you know yeah. right i mean it's bullshit for me it's i know it's bullshit you know i know that yeah. i was thinking the same things like these guys need to cross their high horse <clears throat> and it's like that, that's absolutely not i know i suck yeah me too. I'm super clear on that. I fail at this every day. I have seen <laughs> my own inventories. Yeah. I am aware of how many people I have hurt. Yeah. And I am aware of my character defects and how self-centered I can be. Yeah. And that's one of the things on the front page of my mental newspaper. You know, I don't. Right. I know I'm not bitching. I know it. Yeah. I know that. But I also know that it is possible to achieve perfect adherence to spiritual principles throughout the day in different circumstances. Yeah. Can I maintain them? No. No. 
I'm, I'm a human being. Human being. I cannot maintain perfect adherence to these principles. The right. book says that. Yeah. But it doesn't say we cannot achieve perfect adherence to these principles. You could have, and I have had, you know, incredible experience, incredible experience after incredible experience as a result of... Challenges. Yeah. Challenges. The successful application yeah. in times yeah. that are really hard. Yeah. The heart of this for me and the, and the useful piece of information for me in all this is that you can be rid of selfishness mm-hmm. for moments and periods. You can. Mm-hmm. You can chisel away at it more and more. You can become um, interested in your fellows and less interested in your own plans. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This these things do after a while not feel like contrary action right because they because it becomes clear and clear this is the right thing to do yeah and it feels good yeah um but just that we're not stuck being selfish i guess is at the heart of this yeah so maybe you can talk about that well uh, what you described this like losing interest in selfish things and and starting to become more interested in what I can do for others is, is again, going to lead us back to step three. That's Those are, like, the third step promises. And, uh, you know, as long as we, like, this, the third step in a nutshell is, like, here's a whole bunch of shit to, like, stop doing. Stop behaving this way. Stop behaving that way. And then start taking the approach that, that God is the director in this show and you're just an actor. And, and then when we sincerely take that approach, the things that you describe happen. I do become less and less interested in myself and, and more and more interested. Like, it becomes less contrary action. Um, there is one line in the third step prayer that really sums it up for me. Uh, it says, I'm asking God to relieve me of the bondage of self so that I may better do thy will. It's kind of like what I was talking about earlier is like, you know, um, praying for something and then getting off my ass and going to go do what I believe God would want me to do. And, and then I'm asking that in that portion of the prayers, like relieve me of the bondage of self so that I can actually go. It's funny, like what stops me from doing God's will? Self. Self. So in the third step prayer, I'm asking God, the third step is ultimately, basically, I'm going to start doing what God would want me to do. And I'm asking God to remove the stuff in me that, that prevents me from doing that. What jumps in the way? What cock blocks, you know? Right. <laughs> Self. Yeah. Fear. Yeah. Procrastination. Laziness. Yeah. Resentment. My attachment to how things should go. Yeah. It's not that complicated. I, you know, I, t- I could talk about this for hours. I'm taking somebody through the steps. And, you know, you hear people all the time like, I don't know what God's will is. Dude, it's not that complicated. Yeah. It's just not. Think of it as a movie. <laughs> I come home. I share this all the time. Like, this is a, just a, a very simple, common example. I come home from work, and the trash is full. If, if God was directing that scene, what would be the most loving, what would love want me to do in this scene? Take out the trash. Oh, go take out the trash. So I'm like, okay, yeah. So I'm walking towards it, and then all of a sudden I'm like, wait a second, fuck that. It's not even my trash. I haven't even been here all day. None of that trash is even mine. There's two other people that live in this house. Why does it always have to be me? My resentment 
and my self-pity, my victim, just jumped in between. Right. God wants me to do something, and self, my resentment and self-pity just jumped right in there like, no, fuck that. Don't, don't do that, you know? And that's flipping the role of principal and agent, where you are all of a sudden the principal. Yeah. Treating God like he's the agent. Yeah. This is bullshit. I shouldn't yeah. have to do this. Yeah. Why is this here? Yeah. Why is this my job? Right. Yeah. And I'm praying for, like, God to, like, change my wife or my son's mentality, like, so that they can, you know? Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> So, I don't know. Yeah, I fail it every day, I guess. And I said from the get-go that over the course of time, my being able to spot that, um, I, I get a little better at that. Mm-hmm. Being able to spot it right away. Discomfort. That's what I need to look for. Trouble. Right. What's troubling me? I need to look for that and then use the tool, the tools that I learned. We're, it's, it's interesting that... You know, we talk about like uh, resentment and fear in, in the book, and like these are things that block us from God. And they, the book is designed to like, the steps are like designed to like recognize that. And resentment, for example, resentment, we see that there's no value in it, so we need to learn how to master it. It doesn't say I'm never going to get resentful again. Right. It doesn't say you're never going to, you know, you should recognize that anger has no value, sweep that shit under the rug, and never think about it again. They give us tools to, like, master it and outgrow fear. So recognize it. Go through the process. In my mind, no value in this. God, what would you want me to do? I have to realize that other people are perhaps spiritually sick, not from a high horse, not looking down on them from a high horse like oh they're poor they're spiritually sick they're spiritually sick like I am equal yeah they're not trying to upset me right my son is not trying to upset me by not taking out the trash right you know it wasn't his design right (laughs) he's just not thinking of other people he's not being an asshole he's just not thinking of other people (laughs) he's not thinking of what he can do and and so you know it's a process and it's like so okay so what can i do what would love want me to do because people appreciate an empty trash can i appreciate an tr- empty trash can and i know that my son does too and i know that my wife does too because people do everybody loves an empty everybody trash can everybody loves an empty trash can so what's the most loving thing i can do take it out right I gotta have you know people are always like oh you're not helping your son you're not teaching him a lesson oh dude stop it you're always looking for an excuse to like you know yeah there's you always people are always looking for a loophole they want to stay sick it's like no listen I can have a talk with my son we can discuss it if I need to take something away like I can take action it doesn't have to be rooted or coming from a place of anger right you can take that emotion off of the table and yeah have a talk with him. But whatever, I can also take out the trash. It takes like two seconds, and my wife will appreciate it. I really try to keep it simple. Like, I always have choices. God want me to take out the trash or not. That's the other choice. My wife walks into the room. Will God want me to say, hey, babe, you look pretty? Or not. I mean, those are the two choices I have. Right. You know? What would the selfish thing be? I'm not saying what God is. Like, this is the beauty of Alcoholics Anonymous. They don't say what God is is, or what God looks like or really even what God's will is. It's like, here's self-will. Here's what it's not. Yeah, here's what it's not. 
Yeah. So, I don't know. Would God want me to tell my wife she looks pretty? If, you know, if I'm, like, angry at her, like, fuck that, I ain't telling her. She, you know, I'm not getting her flowers. What has she done for me lately, you know? That's self. Yeah, that's self. Right. All right, so take that option off the table. What am I left with? Right. That was the process for me is that that's, this is why I see love as God now. Or see God as, as love for me because I've just basically taken all the other options or variables off the table. It's, it's okay, resentment? That's not God. That's, God probably doesn't look like resentment. It probably doesn't look like fear. It probably doesn't look like self-pity. It probably doesn't look like ego. Uh, probably doesn't look like morbid reflection, like this whole process of like, okay, it's not this, it's not that. What's I believe ultimately we have two options in life. There are two things to choose from. Everything I, I do or everything I say uh, is going to be rooted in either love or fear. Right. To some degree. Whatever it is I do, there's going to some degree it's going to be rooted out of either fear or love. And this was a process of for me of just identifying fear. And if I take that out, all that's left is love. Right. Dave, we're out of time. No. Oh, yeah. We're way over. So, oh, and, and I still have to ask you a few questions. Okay. So these are just random questions that I'm going to ask. I'm going to ask people random questions at the end. Yeah. Um, they'll be all over the map. But we'll learn a lot about you. Okay. The first question, and this definitely relates to recovery, but I don't want to get into how. Okay. Del Taco or Taco Bell? Taco Bell, for sure. Okay. Um, the next question is, how hard is it for you to not give unsolicited advice? It's really hard to not give unsolicited advice. Um, and I fail at that a lot. You do? I think I'm getting better at it. Yeah. It's something that I've, I've had to... I recognize it. I recognize it sooner. And I'm, be able to, I'm able to, you know, get beyond it faster, um, more often, mm-hmm. over the course of time, and trying to practice this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. You're doing great. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> this is very scientific. Do you have any tools that you use... For when you are in a meeting and you are judging someone who's sharing? Tools that I use for that. Well, I don't know. I mean, it's I, first of all, I recognize that that's self. I recognize that quick. Right. Um, I don't know what other people need to hear. Um, and I guess I just, you know, I try to listen. I try and get that out of the way. Right. Because that has no value in this scene. My judgment has no value in this scene and try to just like really listen to what they have to say when was the last time you listened to acdc um i don't know maybe two or three days ago okay and the last three songs you listened to voluntarily um can't find my way home traffic is that traffic or blind face blind face um, I'm going to actually have to look at my phone to see what it was. Because I listened to it on the way over here. It's Blind Face. And bear with me. 
uh, Son of a Preacher Man, Dusty Springfield, mm-hmm. and give a little bit. Super Tramp. Nice. Okay, well now we know much more about you, and it's good. <laughs> <laughs> well, I want to thank you so much for being on the show today. Will you thank come you for back me. for part two? I'd love to, yeah. Okay, we will definitely have right. you back soon to have part two. And I am going to go try to live a life that was worth saving. And I hope you do the same. Good night. <laughs>